Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk the Podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you've joined me for this episode of the podcast. Now, last week in this brand new year, 2017, we a new series of shows called This Kid Won't Play, Solutions for Common Problems in Play. And we started the show by talking about sensory processing issues. And that's really what's going on with the majority of children that we see when we have issues with them interacting or not knowing how to use a toy. Sometimes it could be a cognitive issue and kind of a mix of other issues. Sometimes language is really what's missing, children aren't symbolic, but we're talking about all of that in this series, and my hope is that you'll look at problems in play or when a kid isn't playing with a fresh set of eyes so that you don't think, well, he just doesn't like the toy, which we're going to talk about today, or he's just being bad, or mm, he wants to play with things that are way more advanced than this, or He just likes his iPad. He doesn't like anything else. I hope that you'll be able to, like I just said, take a fresh look at some of these issues and realize there may be something else going on and there may be some things that you can do as the adult that would help play become easier, become more fun, become uh, less... mm, let's say, less like an assault on the little systems of our children who have pretty significant sensory processing differences. So that's what this is about. So if you've not listened to the first show, go back and that was show 300. I'm going to say it's 303. Yeah, because today's show 304. Go back and listen to show number 303 kind of as a preview. And we did two problems last week. We did children who avoid interaction, which is a big, big deal for kids who have autism, for kids who have other kinds of social issues, and it looks like, again, that they're ignoring you or choosing to kind of tune you out, go back and listen to that show for those kinds of suggestions. Um, And we also talked about kids who place toys in their mouths. (laughs) And those kinds of kids, remember, we talked about just being a little bit... um, maybe sensory-seeking, and that they like to feel things in their mouth. That's how they still process information, much more like a younger toddler or a baby would do. We talked about how it's developmentally appropriate for children until they're the age of 24 months developmentally. Now, not chronologically, developmentally, to still kind of want to put things in their mouth, and that we really can do some of these other things and certainly do some of the behavioral strategies that we talked about at the end of the show or the end of that particular segment of the show. But remember, development or developmentally is developmentally, (laughs) meaning that even if they're four or five and developmentally or cognitively, they're still back at that 18 to or 12-month level before they reach that 24-month developmental level milestone. You may still see some of that because that's just where they are. And, again, it's not that the strategies won't be appropriate or that you can't do some other things to help that. But sometimes I think just kind of realizing this is where this kid is This is what we've got. (laughs) This is why he's not being bad. He's not purposely trying to irritate the fool out of me here. This is what's really going on with him. It helps put it in perspective. And sometimes when moms are really stressed about problems, 
or stressed about things, challenges that they see in their children, when we can just help them kind of take a step back and realize, you know, this isn't something that this child is can even really control at this point, it helps a parent be able to move through the strategies and try some of these different things without all of the pressure that arises when they think, gosh, this is just a real behavioral problem or this kid is just being a little... Um, he's challenging me. He's he's not realizing my authority or he's doing this to get on my nerves. And sometimes parents will say those kinds of things without even consciously really thinking about what they're saying. So we have to help a parent kind of redirect that feeling. And if that's a mom, if you're a mom like that and if that's a situation you find yourself in, hey, don't beat yourself up. Don't say, man, I can't believe I reacted that way or I can't believe I did that or I can't believe I kind of took that position. It's okay because we all have those days where things we're just pretty sensitive ourselves and things get on our our last nerve when they shouldn't. But you have to just kind of take a step back. And, again, I'm hoping that the solutions that we talk about in this series of shows will help give you some more tricks or more tips for you to implement as you're working with a child who's particularly um, resistant or particularly reluctant to try to play when you're trying to play with him. And we, all, and we also talked about in that first show, too, play is how kids learn. Play is developmentally appropriate, so we certainly want to be sure that we are looking for how anything that we can do to make play easier and more fun for not only the kid but for you too. Because if you're constantly trying to fight what seems to be a kid's kind of natural inclination, man, that's hard. And that's and it's hard for a parent. It's hard for a therapist, but it's really hard for a parent because they don't always have the persistence to keep going you know as a therapist we're getting paid (laughs) that's why we're there and this is our chosen field so we are a little more um you know we keep going when a parent might be a little quicker to stop something because they think well this just isn't working i need to do something else so help a parent kind of get to the right place and the right perspective on some of these things if a parent is particularly uh, frustrated by their child's lack of play or by how it seems to go and if a parent seems to kind of want to jump on the overcorrect 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 pattern with the kid and and it just kind of messes up the flow of play and you sort of look at your little friend and think well I know why you don't want to play because this isn't very much fun for you and you kind of look at the mom and say well I, I know why you are concerned about this but there's a different way to do it, and let's just, let's just talk about this for a second. Sometimes just kind of stopping with a parent, if you're a therapist, and saying, hey, let's not go on. Let's, let's talk about what's going on right here. Let's talk about how you're feeling. Let's talk about how it's really going. Let me give you my perspective of this. Because sometimes just saying to a parent, hey, I understand why this is driving you nuts, and I get it, but let's talk about how we can make this a little bit better. And you never want to beat a parent up for how they're feeling about their child. They're so stressed and so concerned and so worried half to death that a lot of the times when we're working with parents and families because they know that there's something that's not quite right about their child's development. So we have to always kind of keep that in mind, especially when we're working with parents who, again, seem pretty wound up or pretty, um, not even like that. Let me just say it this way, parents who are really, really deeply 
and rightly so, concerned about their child's development. So meet a parent where they are and talk with them about it and then help them move, move forward. All right, so let's talk about the next full series of problems or challenges that we can or that we do see in children who have language delays. And again, we're talking about really young kids here, toddlers and preschoolers. So children who are under five is how I usually kind of like to refer to this. And toddlers, I, I sort of think about you as a preschooler when you turn three. And so toddlers would be kids who are under three. And that, that's how I define that. People have asked me that before, so I wanted to mention that. So that's our age group here, our target population. So let's talk about this next little set of problems. And remember that these solutions that we're talking about are excerpts from the last chapter of my therapy manual called Teach Me to Play With You. It's the very first book I wrote in 2010, and it has uh, the first several chapters are cute little routines and games and songs that you can use with the child to get them to learn how to interact with you and get them engaged with you. So lots of step-by-step -step instructions. There's a chapter on very early play, so toys that are very familiar and are available in most times, bubbles, blocks, even some kind of homemade things like playing with hats or playing with paper airplanes or spinning in a chair. And if you need some ideas for those kinds of things, and if you are working with families who don't have a lot of resources, it's an excellent book for you to have because it gives you lots and lots of little ideas of things that you can implement. Again, super practical, super available. Uh, and the last chapter of that book is where we're pulling this series of shows from. It's a chapter on solving these problems in play because they are there. Most of the time, children, too, with significant language problems are also going to have some sensory processing differences, too. Uh, so take a look at that book, particularly if you need written references or if you need tools to be able to share with parents if you're listening to the show I think I said this last week while you're driving a lot of therapists who do home visits will share with me hey this is how I kind of keep my mind on work between work or if I need new ideas I'll listen to the podcast while I'm driving from one little client's home to the next so if that's you hello keep keep going I did that for years and years and years uh, and then sometimes people will say they're exercising or cleaning or gardening or whatever you're doing but you can't always write this down you can't stop to take notes and you don't really want to interrupt the flow of the show because if you turn it off you may not get to turn it back on so all of this information is summarized from teach me to play with you so get yourself a copy of that book if you need the written resources especially if you're a therapist and want to pass this along to all of the families you serve and the coupon code especially for podcast listeners is podcast p-o-d-c-a-s-t so you can save yourself ten dollars off that book it's regularly 48 dollars, so that's a nice big discount now we therapists can't always do math <laughs> But I believe that's like more than a 20% discount, which is a great, great, great um, coupon code for you to use. All right, so let's move on to this next little set of problems. Let's talk about some things that kids might do with a toy instead of playing. And, and boy, this can kind of be an issue for parents, too, because they'll think he doesn't like the toy. We'll save that one for last, but today let's, let's talk about, or maybe last today, but before we talk about doesn't like toys, what do you do? Let's talk about kids who do things with toys besides playing. So let's talk about, first of all, kids that hold the toy instead of doing what's meant 
uh, to be done with a toy. So this might be a kid who seems like he's obsessed with one particular toy and refuses other kinds of things. I've had children do this with all sorts of things. They, it might be little Hot Wheels cars. I've had kids do that. I've had ki uh, kids who just would pick, you know, it might not be one particular toy that they're obsessed with. You know, certainly we all know kids who maybe are Thomas fans who want to hold a Thomas in each hand and then not really do much else with it except hold it. Uh, there's some kids who really don't have a particular toy like that that they that they really cling to, but it's just anything. So whatever they kind of pick up at the beginning of the day or the beginning of the hour or whatever period of time you're thinking about, and then that's what they hold on to. And, and the next afternoon, it could be something completely different. And what, what's going on when that happens? A lot of times is that they like the sensory feedback of having something in their little hands, meaning they like how it feels. So if it's a video cover, if it's a book, if it's something that they can't play with at all, it makes it even more challenging because then you realize, gosh, the holding is what they like. The holding is what their little body is telling them that they need. So what do you do for a kid like that? Anytime I have a holder, and that's kind of what I call them or think about it, I just know they need some deep pressure in their little hands. And you can do that with several different things. I try to just squeeze their hands and I try to put it in the context of play. So you might do something like row, row your boat where you're holding their little hands when they're sitting on your lap, on your legs. You could do it in a chair, but I most often do it on the floor and have a little friend sit on my lap. And so any little game like row, row your boat where they're facing you and their little hands are facing you, you know, you've got an opportunity there to sneak in some input. So you're squeezing their little hands while you're row rowing. You might play another little game like up down. And these games are all in the earlier chapters of Teach Me to Play with You. But again, your purpose here, you're doing other things. You're saying other things. You're um the, the kids certainly, I hope, will be involved with you in what other, other little game or rhyme or song that you're doing. But your secondary <laughs> reason for doing that activity is going to be that you're squeezing those little hands because you know that he or she needs that little feedback, that they're craving that input. And again, you tell that by their behavior. They've shown you that that's what they need. You might play a game like Ring Around the Rosies where you're holding their hands too. And you be sure that you are playing it more than one time. You know, it's going to take more than oh, 10 seconds of feedback for that those little hands to feel like they can relax and they can move on and play with a toy rather than holding something right there. So think about those kinds of things. Think if he's holding this toy, why is he doing this? Is it because he really loves the toy? Is this his little hot button right now? Or is it something else? And again, you can kind of tell that by if it's, if he's holding onto one toy versus it doesn't matter what it is. He just has to have something in his hands all the time. Let me just kind of share a personal story here from my own children. Our oldest child, who is now an adult, and thank goodness has no interest in anything that his mother would do like this professionally and will never listen to the show. But he was a holder too. And he, he held a lot of things. And it wasn't just one or two little things. But I started to... As my career advanced and I started to learn more and more and you know, have more friends that were OTs and reading more about kids with sensory processing issues, 
I started to really, really pay attention to this hand piece. I noticed that when he played dress up, boy, he really liked wearing gloves. And it didn't matter if it was in July in hot South Mississippi. (laughs) He wanted something on his little hands. You know, he did a lot of, as he grew up, and one of his uh, calming strategies or coping strategies, and again, we didn't always call it that because you don't want everything to sound like it's therapy all day long. But he, he would you know, put his hands against the wall, like and do some little standing up kind of push-ups or even anything where he's kind of pushing his hands down on the table or on the floor or wherever. That'll give kids feedback like that too. Wheelbarrow walking was really fun because he liked that pressure in his hands. So think about the kinds of activities that you can just intersparse throughout the day. And talk if you're a therapist, Talk to parents about let's come up with all the things that we can think of that you already do or that would be so easy to incorporate into your own family schedules and routines, and let's think about how we can get him some pressure to his hands. Now, as a speech pathologist, you may feel a little bit weird about that because you're thinking, "Mm, that's not really my scope of practice. And certainly as a developmental therapist or as an educator who's working with children, you might feel a little bit in over your head when you start talking about this with parents. But sometimes you don't have to understand all the ins and outs or the why a kid is doing it. Parents just want solutions. Parents just want strategies that work and things they can try. So don't feel weird about that. And certainly, as we talked about last week on the show, Get an occupational therapist if you have the luxury of making a referral and getting another colleague to help you with the kid. And just, you know, when you're making the referral or when you're, when you're first having contact, as I hope you do, with the other kids, uh, other team members that see the same children that you see, you know, say, man, I've noticed that he holds toys in his hands a lot. And I really think this is a sensory processing thing, you know. I think he really needs some little input to his hands a lot. So let's come up with some strategies that mom and dad can use or daycare teacher can use or grandma whoever he's with and let's teach the family how to give him what he needs so that he can move on with his play skills and not have to hold things all day long so that's one explanation for why a kid might hold a toy instead of playing sometimes it's that um, kids don't always know where their little bodies are in space and that was another thing that happened with our own son he had a lot of difficulty with kind of that sensory perception with that. And so sometimes they're holding things because, you know, that's kind of a, if you'll think about it, it's kind of a grounding point. So, again, that's something that you'll need an OT to kind of help you tease all of that out. Sometimes kids hold things rather than playing because they have difficulty with motor planning, meaning their little bodies <laughs> work There's nothing really wrong with those little arms and legs and fingers, their hands, but they have difficulty sequencing those movements. So there's not really a muscle problem per se. It's just that planning. It's just from getting that message to from their little brains to that little body part, somehow it short circuits. And again, that's a real simplified explanation, but it's one that parents relate to. And so It's not that they don't want to play with a toy. They just don't know how to play with a toy. And you may see them, they're so interested, and they are looking at the toy, and they are curious about it, and they obviously want to do it, but they can't hook the trains, or they can't close the door, or they can't snap whatever's supposed to go together. 
but they can hold the toy. So can you see how that would be their default? When I don't know what to do with it, let me just sit here and hold it because it looks fun and I want to do it, but I can't always, I can't make myself perform these fine motor actions <laughs> required to really play. So what do you do with these kids? You really teach them what's going on you, or how to play. You teach them how to do the, the movements. And sometimes they may resist a little bit because, again, holding is easier than whatever it is you're trying to get them to do. But we have to be a little bit more persistent and give some hand-over-hand assistance so that they can uh, move toward playing rather than holding. All right. And we didn't talk about this, but uh, other than a little bit, when I was mentioning the kids who might become obsessed with Thomas, or I've had kids maybe do this with a particular uh, shape. Let's say they have a shape sorter toy that they really, really like, and let's say they hold, you know, the octagon. <laughs> they're going to, or star, you know, and they always, if they're talking, they always kind of say it that way because they're so excited about it. And that's kind of what they want to hold on to. And sometimes when you take it away, it's almost more trouble than it's worth because the child then has a meltdown. So what do you do with those kids? You have to either, you've got two options here that seem to work pretty consistently. One is you can use whatever they're holding, use that in play. So make it a part of the play. So they may not want to let go of it to go in the shapes order because they've done that a lot and it wasn't as fun for them as holding it, but they might push it in Play-Doh, they might hide it in beans or rice, you know, some kind of sensory activity, which again, it could be kind of a, a double whammy there that they like holding the object because they are a little bit obsessed with the object, but they also have some sensory feedback issues going on. So you introduce a sensory activity so that you're you're kind of trying to solve all the problems with one activity. You're giving them something to do besides hold that object, and you're giving them additional sensory feedback or input with the activity that you're using. So take a look at that when, when kids are holding, and don't just, you know, uh, gosh, I've done it too, so I'm not trying to say, you know, when I'll say sometimes a parent will just jerk it out of their hands without realizing you know why I say all those things? Because I've done them <laughs> and I've seen them <laughs> when it's happened. So I'm not being overtly negative. I'm just trying to talk about things that happen. And so, and again, I'm not blaming a mom or, you know, myself when I would try that kind of strategy, but I'm just going to take it away and see what happens. And again, the kid falls apart and then you have a 20 minute meltdown to deal with where it might've been easier if we had tried something else so that we don't have to deal with that emotional upset and trying to regulate, help that child regulate after. You know, we could have avoided that whole messy scene if we had done something different from the beginning. So look at that. Um, look, at, look at why a kid's doing that. Sometimes we can just teach kids to squeeze their hands rather than hold something there. You know, do some squeezes. And, again, you can do some fun little um play routines. I've, I've done that with several children where a game has just, you know, become squeeze, you know, when we're just squeezing our hands and we might do that four or five times in a row and laugh and laugh and laugh and have a good time. And then the child is able to move on to play. So look at that. Let me give you some other ideas here. Sometimes it's just that he needs something else to do so that if instead of holding that toy, if we can just find something that's more interesting <laughs> 
will entice him to play and put it down like that because he's more willing to give up the item if he's got something else to move on to or something else to do. And that's what I was trying to say, too, with instead of if you're going to take it away, and if you think, gosh, that's all I'm left with, here's my only solution, let's just get it over with, have that next item ready to go so that his attention is immediately moving on to the next thing. Now, sometimes when I try to say this kind of stuff to parents, or some, sometimes occasionally it'll, I'll have a group of therapists that are particularly um, discipline-oriented, and they'll say, but he's got to learn. He's got to know that he's not supposed to do that and that he needs to play with what's in front of him. What about that? There's a time and place for that. But remember, so many of our little friends that we're dealing with, all of them have developmental delays. And so even though you would think he's two or he's three, he's he's getting pretty big for this. I'm getting tired of this. This is getting really, really old. you got to still kind of remember where that child is developmentally. And so if he's developmentally 12 months, 15 months, 18 months, he probably would not snatch a toy or remove a toy from that child you would be a little bit more gentle about it because you would think oh he might get upset or oh this is going to be hard for him and so you would be more compassionate about it and somehow as kids get older we sort of lose that because we get a little we we start we either get kind of tired of we think gosh I'm creating more of a behavioral issue here or a disciplinary kind of issue why don't I just go ahead and kind of help him grow up a little bit but on the same time, always keep in mind where that kid is developmentally. And always, always, I think, as a therapist and as a parent, we have to always think about children from a real compassionate and more gentle place, especially with early intervention, because these are, after all, practically babies that we're talking about. So keep that in mind. And sometimes you have to have a little conversation with yourself about that so that you don't get so focused on discipline and do, you know, he's got to play appropriately today, that kind of thing, so that you don't cause yourself to have to uh, get overly frustrated. If you can kind of regulate your own emotional temperature as you are moving through some of these challenging issues, you know, that'll help. And certainly trying to keep a child's Needs in mind as you work with him is a good, good, good place to start. All right, we talked about incorporating his preferred item into play, and that helps a lot. So if he is obsessed with holding on to the sippy cup, even when it's empty, what are some things you could do to incorporate that, that cup that he's holding in play? You could certainly try to get him to pretend that he's drinking. Pretend that he – give it to another little stuffed animal or a baby doll as you're playing or even you you may you know stick your little face down there and you know and pretend like you're drinking and do some things back and forth with that you're working on pretend play (laughs) so that's a skill he's using it rather than holding it so can you see how that would be better other things that I've done here with a kid who's just really insistent on holding a toy rather than playing is try to hide that object in his own clothes So I'm taking it out of his hand, but I'm not really taking it away from him. And that may cause some children to be a little bit upset that they have to let go of it. But usually the surprise and the novelty and the anticipation that they're getting it right back when they dig it out of their shirt or find it, you know, in their little pants leg, then they're kind of happy because that's that whole object permanent surprise thing and they can move along a, a, a little bit better that way because you've made it funny 
be sure as you're doing that, again, that you are keeping it real light and really fun so that the child understands, <clears throat> excuse me, that you are playing with that item. <coughs> excuse me. And, again, your attitude here is going to be really, really important. And as I like to tell parents, you know, we always have to have a plan before we do something. So if we know that, you know, he's holding on to his drumstick for dear life, we, before we take it away, we have to have that next thing ready so that we don't totally disrupt the flow of our activity. And we've talked about that several times now, so I hope that that's a, a big lesson that you're holding there and that you remember. Sometimes it, it, we can offer a similarly sized item that gives them the same feedback during play. So if he's holding something, but you're ready to move on to the next activity, and you think, gosh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get this little car out of his hand, but I know that we're going to play with a ball toy next. Go on and hand him a ball just to hold to. And so, again, you're meeting that need for input if that's what he needs or, motor, you know, he needs to hold it there to know where his body is in space or for motor planning, he kind of has to get geared up and hold something first before he can use it. You're doing that, but you're still able to move on to the next play activity that you're doing. Um, and lastly, I've already mentioned hand-over-hand -hand assistance. Be sure that you're doing a lot of that just to show him how to play, show him what, what he can do with either the thing he's holding or the next thing that you're bringing out. You know, we do have to do a lot of direct teaching with children who have all kinds of developmental delays. And sometimes when there's a language delay, we're so hyper-focused on teaching the language that we forget about teaching the play or teaching the activity we're teaching a kid how step-by-step step to do what we want them to do, and then we're surprised when a kid doesn't participate. And, again, you can tell him, show him, help him. You can tell him what we're going to do with the toy, and then you can show him how to do it by modeling the play action yourself. But then if he doesn't do it, we should always be prepared to help him, meaning that hand-over-hand -hand assistance where we take his little hand, we put our big hand over his little hand, and we help him do it. And so many times... That's just all it takes is just that showing, getting that motor plan or that motor pattern going. Showing, it's putting our hand on their hand and pu putting the ball in the hole ourselves so that we are, are taking their little bodies and moving them through the motion. So that's certainly something that we can try there. All right, let's talk about a really similar problem. What about kids who line toys up? rather than playing. So these would be kids who, instead of playing with Thomas the Train and all those other little trains, Henry and James and all those other ones, they don't want to roll them around or put them in the station. They just want to line them up. And then they get really mad when you disrupt their order and their structure there. What about kids who, again, it, they may not be lining toys up or lining those trains up, but kids who are obsessed with repeatedly repetitively spinning the wheels and they get really really mad when you disrupt that what about kids who play, just want to dump things in and take things out rather than really really playing what's going on with those kids so first let's talk about some possible explanations and then let's talk about some ideas to try some children have such strong visual preferences that hardly anything you can introduce or do with a toy is not nearly as much fun to them as just watching those wheels spin or looking at those lines that they have created 
when they have very precisely lined up those little cars or lined up those trains or whatever, the crayons. They may line up crayons or markers side by side. And so you'll see them after they line them up. They spend a lot of time, you know, getting down on their little stomachs to look. And you think, gosh, you know, why in the world are you spending so much time doing that? They're getting some kind of internal feedback from that. They're getting the same excitement from looking at those visual patterns as you think they would get from play. And so, again, they can't tell you what's so stimulating about that activity, but you know that it must be a real turn-on for them because they do it a lot. And as, as parents and as adults, as therapists, you know, our first inclination, too, is, well, we've got to move beyond this. We've got to do something more appropriate. We've got to do something more mature, more functional. And, yes, you do, and we will, but I think the starting point here is kind of looking at why they're doing what they're doing because, again, that does give you some empathy. And that does also let you know, man, he's got a real visual strength here. He likes he must like how things, how lines and patterns and, you know, sometimes I'll notice a kid who's done that and then I'll notice them looking up and I'll think, my goodness, he's really looking at things that I don't even notice, like the shadows that the overhead lighting is making on these toys. You know, he's processing this information in a totally different way than I ever would have done. And so have that initial appreciation for <laughs> his learning style, and again, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get him to play, it does, and, but it also doesn't mean that you think everything that this child does is wrong or bad or immature or incorrect. Um, and so, again, if you can kind of get to the point where you're appreciating that, and as a therapist where you're helping a parent appreciate that and recognize what they're doing and, and what, why, why you think they're doing that, it does have a new level there of understanding that a parent might not have experienced before. So again, kids with strong visual preferences often will line up or organize or somehow group their toys in ways that other children don't so that they can look at them and spend that time, again, seeing things that you may not even see. So that's a possible explanation. Sometimes it's just like we talked about in the last problem where we, where we were talking about kids who hold toys instead of playing with them. They'll, they, they go a step further. They don't have to hold them, but they don't know what to do with the toy, so they'll just line them all up. And so, again, kids with motor planning problems, which is what this is, they can't open, close, push, pull, hook, catch, or even put their fingers sometimes in the right place to perform whatever the action is. But they may have learned, hey, I'm going to line this up, and this makes me just as happy <laughs> as if I were playing with a toy. And so look at that and think, gosh, is motor planning a component with this? Has he just kind of used lining up as his default way to play with things because he doesn't know physically and he can't seem to make his little body do that next step? So sometimes that's an explanation. Sometimes children line up toys rather than playing with toys or will do something repeatedly with a toy because they need the predictability and the control and the stability and they know what's going to happen if they line all the toys up versus what if they're trying to play and the whole entire tower comes crashing down. And we've all had little friends like that who have such a low frustration tolerance that they can't even handle the possibility 
that something is about to go wrong with toys or that you are about to come in and mess up their line. And so what do they do when that happens? They guard that little line of toys for dear life. You know, they may put their bodies between you and them. They may try to hit you or push you away because they know that you're going to try to mess it up. They may just start to hoard the toys, meaning they just scoop them all up so that you can't get any of them. And those are children, again, who are pretty inflexible in their play and who need that total control. And let's just say we know adults like that too, right? <laughs> who were pretty, um, pretty rigid and pretty control-oriented. And so they have a hard time dealing with unexpected things that happen, and they get pretty wigged out when the schedule doesn't go as expected or when the house is messy or when someone has used something of theirs and not put it back, guys, that starts really in toddlerhood. It doesn't always, you know, happen when they're 22 and have, a, you know, other messy roommates. That, that whole preference for order and control and structure didn't just happen that day. There's probably been almost always a lifetime building up to that. And, again, those little overreactive sensory systems, they can't handle it when things are out of their control or unpredictable. So that's why kids might line up toys or use them in a, a repetitive way. Uh, another possible explanation for kids who do this would be that a child, again, just doesn't understand instinctively what to do next. So he has a cognitive delay. So, again, it's pre it happens pretty early in play that kids, when we're looking at the developmental sequence here, Putting things in and out is a lot easier than playing with each toy individually. So that's what they default to. They can't figure out how to use all the toys, so they would rather just put them in a bucket and then dump them all out and then do that again because they do know how to do that. And, again, they're getting some kind of internal reward for that. They like it or they wouldn't keep doing it over and over and over. So with those kinds of kids, you know, gosh, he doesn't know how to play with this um, whatever toy it is that you're trying to get him to play with, that's why he's lining it up or that's why he's putting it in and out because he just doesn't know how, what to do with it. So we have to help him move to that next step and figure out how to teach him how to play. So let's talk about some ideas to try for all those things. Here's the kicker, and I think I forgot to say this when we were talking about kids that hold toys instead of playing, but one very important piece of information that you get when <laughs> – dealing with this is that you know the kid likes it because he's shown you this is what I gravitate toward this is where my interest is so this is what we mean when we say follow a child's lead so we try to use that toy first so instead of then getting him distracted or moving on to that next new thing we should start with trying initially to get him to play with uh, what he's trying to line up or what he really seems interested in organizing. And so, again, we can use a lot of the same strategies that we just talked about with uh, kids who are holding. We try to get them to maybe hide that toy in their clothes. So they still have possession of it. It's still really close to them, but we're letting they're hopefully letting us interact with them and use it in a way that's a little bit more functional. Let's say they're lining up trains and, you know, you know that you're not going to go in and mess up the line of trains because that's really, really, really going to um, get him really dysregulated and upset. So what might you do? You might just, you know, push each of the little trains and you're ready, set, go, push it 
ready, set, go, push it. And I'm talking about just a teeny little bit so that you're not completely disrupting that whole organized line of toys that he's set up, but you are doing something with it. Uh, you might, if he's, hold, if he's holding the train or, you know, trying to get it just right or whatever, you might try to even get him to roll it down his own leg, you know, after you've hidden the train and in his little pants and you're trying to do everything you can to get him uh, to play with you in a happy way. That might be something that you could do. Sometimes with trains, what I've done is when the kids have lined them up or cars or anything like that, I'll just start to stack them on top of each other. And I try to take the ones not from the line that they've already established but maybe there's a pile maybe they're pulling uh little cars from the pile to line up so you take some cars from the pile too and do something different with it so try to maybe stack them on top of each other that might be fun that's unexpected and then you'll make a big deal about saying you know boom when they fall down or um maybe even try to crash two of them together do something where you're still using what it is that they like but you're teaching them just that one little step up. You're not completely saying, hey, we're not going to line these things up and this is not how we play. You're just doing that that next little level, that next little fun thing that they may be able to do with that toy. So that's what you want to show them. Uh, some things, times what works really well for me too is just to expand play using one simple related prop. So let's take go back to that train example. Let's say that a child likes trains and he's lined up his trains. We might just, what I might do then is just pick one little thing. Now, not the huge train table that I'm going to completely rock his world by making him take the train from the floor to the table, although sometimes that works because it's novel and fun and he'll move on. But maybe I'll take two or three pieces of the track and just put it right there in front of where he's lined up his little trains or maybe even one little section of track in front of every train. And so all that we want to do then is just push the train right up on the track and then do it with the next train right up on the track and then with the next train right up on the track. You're still keeping the, the kid's basic sense of order and he's still got control and that you haven't completely, like I said before, taken all of that away. But you're teaching him just how to do one more the next thing some kids uh, will really respond to this pretty well you might let's take another example with this like and I, <laughs> trains are such a common example and that's something that lots and lots of our little friends kind of get obsessed with and so you'll find other accessories that you can use with the trains and I've had really good luck with kids with trains with getting them to use that little Thomas carry around station and so I'll open the doors and just as the kids already had their little trains lined up, just again, one at a time, push that first little train into the, the station there and then close the door, you know, tr and then do it with the next one. Hopefully by that third or fourth train, the kid's trying to do that too. So that's certainly a strategy you can try, just taking that one simple related prop and then expanding play from there. Hey, and it doesn't even have to be related. You might do something like cover up the trains with a blanket and pretend that they're going night-night. Or, you know, just pretend it's like a big game of peekaboo where you're hiding the trains, you know, and then do a big thing about, you know, where are the trains, where are the trains, boo. Any little thing that you could do like that to help them 
expand play. As soon as you see that a child is beginning to participate in play himself, reduce that assistance and practice that, that just, again, that one simple action, practice that over and over and over. And again, these are kids who like the repetition, who like the predictability and the structure. So that's certainly something you can do. All right. Um, if there's something that a child is doing, like he likes to line up a group or group a certain type of toy, things that have worked well for me here, just introduce a similar toy to the mix. So let's stick with this train analogy. So let's try, say he has a lot of different trains lined up. Add some cars or add a truck or even add um, little characters like um, if you have the people that go with the Thomas and train, like the conductor people, or even just mix it from different sets. You could just take, you know, a cow from the, your little farm animal set or something and maybe line them up too right beside the trains and just see what will happen. Sometimes, again, it's just that next new little thing that you do. If you let you line those little animals up beside his trains, maybe he'll let you put the animal on top of the trains. And then after you've done that, maybe he'll let you push the train a little bit. So don't go fast. Be pretty slow and deliberate about it. But do everything you can to get a new item. And it helps if it's similar. But it doesn't have to always be. Sometimes it's just the size thing. Kids just want them all to be little things that they can manipulate. So see what you can do then. Sometimes with kids who line things up, you can really use a container like we've already talked about. So even just something like if he lines the trains up on the table, maybe have a bucket so that he can push the trains into the bucket. And that can be kind of fun with Ready, Set, Go or one, two, three, or something that you say, you know, like push and in, push in, push in. And then you do it all again. And again, have you expanded his play in huge steps? No, but you've done one more new little thing that he wouldn't have done before. You developed a verbal routine to go with it. So you're targeting his language. You're helping him be more flexible. You're helping him learn to include other people so that he's not pushing you away as he's trying to line things up. So that certainly is something you can do too. Once you've pushed, pushed all the trains in the bucket, then try to think about what else can we do with it. Maybe then we're turning the bucket over and uh, putting the trains on top. Maybe then we're having the trains be on top and then we'll have the trains, you know, jump. And again, if you have five or six trains there, you know, you're having the trains jump back on the table. And then you might start that whole routine again where you line up the trains and then you push them one at a time into the bucket and then you dump them out and then you put them on top of the bucket and then you make them jump. And so, again, you're sequencing. <laughs> Your kids' motor planning problems need that practice anyway. Following a sequence during play, your kids with cog cognitive delays need that practice too. And so, again, just kind of look, what can I do to add this one extra little part to play here and see. Now, be careful when you are doing this that you don't over-talk. So what do I mean by over-talking? That means that you are... <laughs> just going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And sometimes that's what becomes so overstimulating for children as we are playing with them. So pick a few key words and short phrases and say them over and over. And again, if a child is likely to be overstimulated, he um, 
certainly will display that when he's trying so hard to control his environment as he's doing, as he's lining things up. You know, don't let your language be one more assault to his system. Be sure that you're keeping it light and fun and, again, not so much so that you are overstimulating him. Um, as he's trying to play. Let's talk about one more problem. Let's look at kids who repeatedly push buttons. So we've talked about this. These are kids, again, same sort of issue a lot of times. Um, let's talk about what what similar things might be going on because you may be saying, oh, I don't, my kid doesn't really do that. He doesn't really sit and repeatedly push buttons, but let's talk about it. These might be kids that prefer electronic toys with lights and music above all else, and so they're kind of stuck right there, push, 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 because they like the feedback that they're getting, what they see and what they hear. Again, it might be a kid who perseveratively does this over and over and over for long periods of time. could be kids who use this kind of toy and ignore other people. You know, we call this self-stimulatory behaviors. Um, if a kid consistently does it and, will, and gets really, really upset when you try to interrupt his pattern here, again, that's a self-stimulatory behavior or sometimes it's noted as stereotypic behavior, that uh, just a behavior that he can't seem to break. It's almost on like a little loop. So those are kids, again, who may be doing these same kinds of things that we've talked about with kids that hold toys and certainly kids that line toys up rather than playing. So same kinds of possible explanations. Could have some strong visual preferences, and we've talked about he really likes the light, so he wants to see the toy light up over and over again. It could be that even that he's a little bit underreactive to visual stimulation, meaning that he has to maybe see it a lot for it to begin to register and for it to um for him to process that that's what happened what's happening so he's not a kid that that um he's underreactive so again he has to see something over and over and over before it makes sense to him so he actually craves toys that give him that extra visual piece especially those blinking lights Again, sometimes kids who push buttons or just kids who hold a toy or line up a toy rather than playing uh, because they have those motor planning problems and those pushing the button is their default. It's easier than doing other things. So that's what they've come to do and that's what they like because they're good at it and they know how to do it and know how to control it. And again, sometimes a kid might have a cognitive delay. So he prefers the simplicity of toys that are activated with one push of a button. So he doesn't really understand what to do with uh, toys beyond that. So what are some new things that you can try for kids who repeatedly uh, push buttons like that? I wonder if you can hear me flipping through the manual. Yeah, making sure I'm on the right page here. <laughs> All right, so what are some ideas that we can try? Again, Sometimes you just have to avoid the whole problem to begin with. So when he goes to sleep, if he has had a particular leapfrog toy or maybe it's his iPad that he just wants to do that and nothing else, you may just have to put it away. Sometimes parents will do things like not recharge the iPad or not replace the batteries so that, again, he might try to do it and he may get upset about it, but he moves on after he figures out Mm, I'm not going to get much feedback from this. I'm not going to um, get the same kind of enjoyment that I normally do because it's not working right. 
So that might be something you can do, just sort of remove that so that it doesn't even become a possibility. And again, after nap time or bedtime is a good time to do it because the kid has slept. He's not seeing you take it away and put it away. And sometimes parents will want to sort of make a big deal about it and say, almost like it's a punishment, but you certainly have to redirect some of that and talk to a parent and say, you know, he's not really doing that to be bad. He's just doing it because he doesn't know what else to do. So let's not use it in that way and let's not let, – let's, let's let him forget about it. <laughs> let's help it not be a deal to him emotionally and let's let's avoid this tantrum or this meltdown and let's just not even have that available where he can even see it after he wakes up and sometimes parents will uh, get that pretty quickly and say gosh you know you're right this just is not worth the fight sometimes parents though will be reluctant to put those kinds of toys away because they'll say I think he's really learning or that's teaching him letters I want I want him to learn letters because he's got to have letters, he's got to know his letters when he goes to kindergarten or school. And so you'll have to just really talk parents about, you know, through about what's appropriate and not appropriate. You know, children who are not talking, communicating, really don't need to learn shapes, letters, colors, and numbers yet. And you'll have to have that conversation with parents about why that's not really appropriate. You know, a kid doesn't really need to say, you know, B in his normal everyday life. That's not a functional word. And so, again, sometimes parents will say, you know, um, that's the only thing he likes or I want to make sure I'm teaching him something. If he's not learning how to talk, let's at least teach him the alphabet or he likes numbers. And I get all that. But you'll have to, again, help walk a parent through that and say, you know, we want to use his likes. We certainly want to use his preferences, but we don't want him to get stuck here. We want him to help him move on to things that are he can use every day, things that are a little bit more functional. So um, don't get sucked into that false belief about teaching those academic concepts like shapes, colors, numbers, and letters, especially when they're associated with toys and when parents are um, kind of at their wits end that this is all they'll like to play with, but it's better than nothing. And, and I, I, again, I get that position, but help parents maybe on that and talk them through that and say, you know, when he's stuck pushing all those buttons, he's not really learning how to talk to you. He's not really learning how to communicate with you. This is a pretty self-isolating behavior he's doing here. He looks kind of stuck to me. <laughs> so let's talk with parents and I say, you know, let's just look at how we can get him uh, to move on. And a lot of times with these toys, it's really just limiting that availability so that they're not there. You know, you may try too with kids who really are stuck on pushing buttons like this, try some toys that provide visual feedback without all these bells and whistles of the electronic toys there. So uh, you, you may get a toy that, again, has some lights, has some other features of whatever it is that the kid seems to like with a particular toy. Look at it and try to think, hmm, what other toy here can give him that same kind of feedback? What other toy would be interesting enough visually for him to want to move away from that? Sometimes toys, you know, I've talked a lot about uh, toys with things that move like that little pretend microwave when we were doing that that series in the fall of the toys that I like to use in selecting therapy activities for toddlers and we, we did a whole little segment of a show about using toys that provide that same kind of visual feedback but where kids aren't stuck 
just doing the same thing over and over. So that little microwave, a game like Lucky Duck, so all those little fishing games when there are parts of toys that move and kids can really look at that and that, that movement will capture their attention. But it requires more complex participation than just repetitively pushing that button. Sometimes even things like bubbles and balloons are really fun for kids to look at and kids will get excited about playing those things, but then they're up and moving. And again, they're not just stuck sitting there pushing that same button over and over and over again. Sometimes kids will get stuck in repeatedly pushing buttons and liking those electronic toys because they prefer objects to people. And so then what you're going to need to do is really work on interacting and work on getting them to play with you and certainly social games are the way that you would target that. And we've talked about social games so much on this show. So go back and listen to some of those episodes. There was a whole show on social games earlier last year in 2016 uh, when we did our 11 skills that toddlers must master before words emerge. And we spent a whole show or two talking about different social games and how we get kids to play. And certainly the therapy manual that this series of shows is based on from Teach Me to Play With You has an entire, uh, well, there are two chapters really with all kinds of games and little routines that you can teach a kid that really don't focus on toys at all. They're helping a kid learn how to interact with you first and enjoy being with you first. And you've got those step-by-step-by-step directions there to kind of walk you through. You know, how do I teach him how to play peekaboo? How do I teach him how to play something even a little bit more mature like a hiding game so that he likes being with me and so that you become the toy. (laughs) You become what he likes and what he wants to do or be with rather than getting stuck on one particular toy. And again, the last suggestion I have here with a kid who gets stuck repeatedly pushing buttons is the same that we've talked about with the other two problems that we've covered today. Sometimes kids get stuck doing that because they don't know how to do the next thing in play or they don't know how to move on. They don't know how to play with toys that are a little bit more complicated. So you're just going to have to do lots and lots of direct teaching, lots of hand-over-hand assistance. And for kids right here with who repeatedly push buttons, they're already telling you they understand cause and effect. They're already telling you, I get that. I, I get that when I push this button, I hear the voice from the toy say, you know, ass or green or whatever. You know, it might even be a naming toy, you know, turtle, whatever it is that they're little picture is popping up or whatever the picture is on the button that they're pushing. But they're telling you, hey, I get cause and effect. So with those kinds of kids, you move on to other cause and effect toys. And guys, you already know you can push a button. So start with toys that have a button (laughs) to activate it. So maybe like, you know, a little racetrack where you push the button and the the cars come down. Or maybe a jack-in-the-box where you push the button and the -the jack-in-the-box activates. Or some other toy where pushing the button is the first thing that you do, but it's a different kind of experience, and it certainly is a little bit more complex and expands beyond whatever it is, that electronic toy that you're using that just says the same thing over and over and over. So help a kid expand his play skills in that way. All right, so that's going to be it for today. We did three of those problems. Next week, let's talk about, uh, we'll, we'll keep, 
this same topic, we'll talk about solving problems in play, but let's talk about kids who don't even seem to like toys. And this is certainly something that we've talked about before, but next week we'll have a different spin on it. All right, so have a great week, and I'll uh, be back next time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.